children may run, set them free. And you think it's crowded in here. You should go check out where the kids are going. <laughs> the hallway. Or the bathroom. Don't worry, we're looking day and night for a new place. Keep, pl- keep praying with us. So that way we can just depend that God will give us what we need, which he will. He always has, he always will. So before I get rolling, I want to highlight something that Mark did not talk about. His ministry is specifically focused on people that are in rough spots, whether that be coming from an inpatient treatment facility or from jail itself. He wants to create an opportunity for people to step back into the real world and have a profession and have means to support themselves. It's not just unemployed 30-year-olds that are hanging out in their mom's basement, right, which they need help as well, but it's people that are in desperate spots. If you've ever met a kid named Shane, he's like 23, 24, he's been there for four or five months now. He's the first one. He's, it's been amazing to watch the way that he's engaged in this community and the way that God's been working in his life. Um, so I just figured that's kind of an important thing to know. So my name is Evan. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here. I don't know if you guys know this, but I used to be a teacher for quite some time. Before I became a professional pool boy and housekeeper up at Backroads Inn and Cabins, I hung out with seventh graders for years and years. And I really wish you guys were seventh graders. It would allow me to leave this time feeling so much cooler than I actually am, so much smarter than I actually am. The reason I tell you this is to let you know I'm a teacher at heart. I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. And so I'm always trying to think through the best ways for you guys to learn. And lecturing is the, le- is the lowest when it comes to comprehension rates. It's like 5% of what is lectured tends to be retained. And so that means we've got to come up with different techniques and skills to get something out of this time. Right? That's why we look at the Bible so often. So there's a written word in front of you. You know, another thing that I would suggest, take notes. And I'm not talking notes in my sermon, but whatever pops into your head that the Spirit seems to be pointing out, that this is what I need to remember, write it down. So that way, this afternoon, evening, you can glance through your notebook. On your phone, there's a notebook. And kind of be reminded of what God seems to be working in your life. You can get a packet of five of these for $3 at a local bookstore. All right. I'll stop being Mr. Hayes. I'll start preaching the Word. I got to pray first. God, I give you my mind, I give you my words, I give you everything I have, so that way you will be glorified. Not me, nothing but you. Make it happen, God. I trust you with that. Amen. All right, let's start with some questions. Feel free to raise your hand or not. But how many of you believe that God is real? How many of you believe that you and everything around you came from nothing because of an all-powerful being? Right? I do too. And there's so much evidence that supports this. Out of these concrete beliefs about the reality of this life in the world, I want to focus in on two different natural offshoots this morning. First one, God does not change. And the second one, as his children, we are called to be his representative. Let's start with God does not change. Unfortunately, it is not uncommon for Christians to think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. That Jesus' arrival on earth changed God from being a hard-nosed and wrathful person to someone who is kind and compassionate. You know, it's just as common for people to see God and Jesus as being quite different. God is this old grumpy man that sits on his throne looking for rebellious kids to punish, 
while Jesus is much more chilled and laid back, wanting to hang out with those who have been rejected by the social elite. But let's go back to those questions you just answered. If God is real, has the, sp- has the power to speak everything into existence, and has always been, then why would he change halfway through humanity's existence? For me, it is logical that a being of this grandeur who has no beginning would always remain the same. If you take even a little bit of time to read through the Old Testament, you'll see direct evidence for this. The Exodus is a prime example. Think about it. The Israelites became overwhelmed by inescapable bondage. No matter what they would have tried to do, they were unable to free themselves. That's when and why God steps in. After they cried out to him for help, he brings his power and his compassion to set them free. But the Exodus doesn't stop there. He then leads them away so that way they can get to know him better. The whole purpose of God leading them into the wilderness was so that way he could hang out with a bunch of generational slaves. People that had been in bondage for hundreds and hundreds of years. People that knew very little more than wake up, work hard, be whipped, go to sleep. By spending time with them, he wanted to show them that they were worthwhile. That to them, they were a treasured possession. He also wanted to teach them a better way to live individually and as a nation. And this is identical in so many ways to Jesus, why he came, and why he gave the Holy Spirit. You know, God's instructions to Israel on how to live were essential both for survival and for their well-being, even to the point where they could thrive. Like I just mentioned, they knew nothing except being a nation of slaves. During their time in Egypt, they were fully under Pharaoh's control. That means that they didn't have the privilege of structuring their nation in ways that they saw best or establishing leaders that could then lead their nation into really good things. So when they were set free, there were over 2 million people who had no experience of running a successful nation. And imagine how chaotic this could have been. Has anyone here read Lord of the Flies? Back in 10th grade, I believe, right? Let me give you a, a caption. Even if you haven't done like the quick notes on it, come on, this was high school. All right, anyway, so it's a fictional tale. It is fictional, but it's about a plane of school-age boys that's shot down over a tropical deserted island. And they're all by themselves. No adults survive the crash. With no adults, the, the, boys, the boys try to do their best to survive by creating various rules and roles. But in a short amount of time, everything turns to chaos. Some of the boys are even killed by the hands and teeth, is what it says, of their classmates. Without a responsible and experienced individual to lead them, selfish impulse wins the day. Without God in their midst, the Israelite nation could have easily collapsed in weeks. That is why God stayed with them. So that way he could not only provide and protect for them, but even more importantly, he could turn them into a well-equipped nation. That's why he gave them the Ten Commandments. Like Derek talked about last week, everyone needs to be shown the proper way to live. Otherwise, selfish impulse will lead to pain, loss, and destruction. This is why God gave them the law, so that they would know the best way to live and operate. And this is why God gave us the law. It's not just for the Israelites. Right now you may be thinking, okay, Evan, I was following you, but now you're getting old school, a little too antiquated. Right? Jesus came to free us from the law. Now this thought 
sends so many Christians down the rabbit trail of seeing the God of the Old Testament as being different than the God of the New Testament. Let me give you a couple things to think through. According to the New Testament, Jesus did not come to free us from the law, but from the penalty of the law. Let's check out Romans 6.20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. That's breaking the law. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus did not come to free us from the law, but from the penalty of the law. The second thing, Jesus fully embraced the law that his Father had given. Let me show you two examples. First one, Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's Jesus himself saying that. And a little bit later in Matthew. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. He didn't say, well, the law actually doesn't count. So let me just give you a different set of rules. All right, let me elaborate a little bit more on this one. Out of loving God with all that you are, flow the first four commandments. Out of loving your neighbor as yourself, flow the next six commandments. Show you a chart. Again, I'm a teacher. You can't picture what I'm saying. The two greatest commandments from the two greatest commandments from Jesus encompass or surmise, summarize the Ten Commandments given by God. This means that God Jesus fully embraced the Ten Commandments. Because God knows the best way is for, for his creation to operate, and because God does not change, the Ten Commandments are just as applicable to us today as they were to the Israelites back in 1500 B.C. Whenever you read or are taught about or even hear about the Ten Commandments, try to always bring this back to your mind. Fight against your natural tendencies and the cultural norm to buck the system and give the middle finger to the authority. Bring your mind back to logic. That the creator of everything knows far better than we know ourselves and has the ability to lead us into the best lives possible. That is why he gave us the instructions on how to live. Hope that's making sense. We're going to be spending the next 10 weeks or so in the Ten Commandments. And so I just want to lay that foundation. If you've got questions on that, please come and talk to me. You know, last week we looked at commandments number one and two. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Derek did an awesome job of explaining the power of making the creator your priority over the created. Let's move on to number three. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall, take, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is awesome. I was given one sentence to preach on. You should be out of here by noon, Tad. Don't worry. 
told you I was a teacher, not a preacher. All right, so for me, whenever I study the Bible, it is always helpful to break a verse apart, break a verse or a phrase apart in order to best figure out what the individual is focusing in on. So with this verse, you shall not take the Lord's, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now for me, when I break it apart, the Lord's name is the main focus of this verse, right? And we're not supposed to take it in vain. So let's focus in on those two. Let's think through the importance of a person's name. If it is your name, there are few other things that will grab your attention faster. Have you guys ever heard of something called the cocktail party effect? When you're in, it is a way that people can hear their own name in the middle of a crowded and noisy setting. Has this ever happened to anyone? You're in the middle of a grocery store, fully absorbed in the cantaloupe, and all of a sudden out of nowhere you hear your name? Right? This is because our own name is so closely connected to our identity, the deepest parts of who we are and what the world thinks about us. So whenever it is used, it's directly connected to us, to our reputation, to other people's perceptions of who we are. Hang on to that. We'll get back to it. The second part of this verse that seems to be important is not using the Lord's name in vain. Now, when you hear this, how many of you think that you're just not supposed to say GD or Jesus Christ in a negative way? Right? Anybody else taught that growing up? Just don't do that. Then you've accomplished the third commandment. Simple enough. Right? Now, by Googling commentaries on Exodus 20, verse 7, I came across a couple different sites that define the Hebrew word for vain. They say that it can mean futile, worthlessness, that which has no result or use, and so worthless. That means that the general meaning behind this command is to not associate God, specifically his identity, his character, his reputation, with things that are futile or worthless. Now, part of this is not associating his name with swearing, but it goes far beyond that. It also means that we should not connect the God of the Bible to the worthless and bad things of this world. How many of you have heard people say or have even thought, again, don't need to raise your hands, that they blame God for the negative circumstances that they are experiencing or the ca catastrophic events like tsunamis, hurricanes, and war. Right? This is taking the Lord's name in vain. It is directly connecting God with things that are worthless. And our words are not the only, our only means of communication. We also have the ability to take the Lord's name in vain in how we live. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are his representative. Let me show you where I get this. I show you this verse maybe like once a month. 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on... We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That means that when someone who is a Christian uses their platform as a representative of God to promote things that are not from God, they are taking the Lord's name in vain. Think about pastors using their positions to get rich, right? Or to teach people lies like love is all you need to get to heaven. Or the priestly scandals of sexual assault. And if you keep walking down this trail of thought, you can easily step away from the infamous and eye-catching and start connecting it with your own life. Here's a question that I've been asking myself, really struggling with this week. 
How often do I misrepresent God by my words and actions? As a redeemed child of God, how often are my choices incorrectly showing my Savior to those I interact with? This is one that has been hard for me because I do it a lot. To my wife, to my kids, to my friends, to strangers. I am so often not loving them the way that I would want to be loved. I am often not showing them grace and mercy. When people that are known as Christians do these things, the world around them directly associates who they are and what they do with who God is. Right? If you think, well, we're a Christian nation, this doesn't matter. Think about what you would think of if you saw somebody who was Hindu or a Muslim. Right? Or some other religion that's not commonplace. You would instantly think about their actions and associate directly to what they believe. God does not want his representatives to misrepresent his name. Now, before I say anything else, it's paramount to bring our minds back to what Jesus' death did for us. Remember what it said in Romans 6.23? We have been freed from the punishment that comes from not obeying the law. Even though it clearly states in the third commandment that the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name, because Jesus is our atoning sacrifice, we have been forgiven for every time we ever have or ever will misrepresent the name of God. And thank you, Jesus, for that. So please, if you're starting to feel guilty at all about what I'm saying, kind of like I've been feeling this week, you've got to come back to the fully saving and atoning blood of Jesus. It does nothing. It allows us to not be at all separated from the goodness of God. He is our full redemption. Right? Without Jesus, I would be eternally separated from God because of my daily choices. But remember, Jesus did not come to remove our obedience to the law. So that means that representing God correctly should be something that we take very seriously. Now, for me, in my own study, the next important question I always ask is why? Why should I take this so seriously? Why should we not connect the God of the Bible to things that seem to be useless or worthless? Now, I love how simple this answer is. Because of who he is. Now, back before Moses went before Pharaoh, right after God had prepared, appeared to him in the burning bush, Moses asked God a question. We get this in Exodus 3. If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestor has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I'll go ahead and leave that up for a little bit, Jack. Now, I am who I am can also be translated as I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. Now, the phrase I am in Hebrew is where the word Yahweh comes from. You guys have heard that before, right? It's the name of the Lord. It means I am. Now, I absolutely love this. Remember how we had talked about the way that a person's name is directly connected to who they are and what they do? When Moses asked God his name, he responds, I will show you who I am. And, and he does. For the Israelites, God clearly expresses his power and his compassion during the Exodus. When he stepped into helplessness and brought life and redemption, he showed his deeper characteristics. He showed that he is unstoppable and that one of his deepest desires is to protect and provide to those who cry out for help. 
And as he leads them away from slavery and into the wilderness, Yahweh shows him that he not only wanted to save them, but also, even more so, he wants to develop a relationship with them. He shows and tells them that they are his treasured possession, that he wants to remain in their midst so that way he can provide, protect, and guide them in the days that lie ahead. I hope you're understanding what this says about who he is. Through the entire Exodus story, God shows the Israelites that he is good, that he is a restorer of life, that he loves his creation and wants to be intimately involved with their day-to-day lives. And this is why he gave the third commandment. Do not use my name in vain. Do not associate it with what is useless and of no value because that is not who I am. He has shown in obvious ways that he is of supreme value and importance. Therefore, he wants to be sure that he is represented properly. Can I help you out at all, Nicolette? Maisie's mom. There's things that are far more important than listening to me speak. I can see all you other moms are really excited that wasn't you. <laughs> As am I. All right. So God really wants his name to be properly represented. He wants an accurate account of his character and display to be displayed to those who are around his people so that more and more people will come to him so that more and more of his treasured creation will turn back to their creator and experience the life that only he brings. I hope that's making sense. God, God put Israel in Canaan, the land of Canaan, also known as the promised land, not only for the Israelites, but also for the rest of the world. Please show them that map. So this is a map of Egypt is down left. Um, the Mesopotamia is up to the right. Israel is along the Mediterranean Sea. And you see all those lines. Those are roads for ancient travel. You notice where all those roads that go from Egypt, which was a powerhouse, to Mesopotamia, to Eastern Europe, you notice where all those roads have to go through? Israel. To the east of Israel is the Arabia Desert. Right? They can't travel through that. And so God put Israel on a platform so that way his name could be properly represented to the entire world. Right? When Jesus shows up, you see what happens during the Roman Empire? Christianity explodes because of its location in Israel. God didn't do this just for the Israelites. He did it for the world, and that's why he needed them to properly represent his goodness. You know, the same is true for us and the answer behind why we should glorify God in our lives. Think about the way that God has displayed his character in your life. Remember the questions that, I, that you answered at the beginning? You said that you believe that God is real and that he created you and everything around you. That means that he gave you today. That he made a world that continually gives you breath in your lungs and food for your belly. He built you specifically with talents that allow you to, stri- allow you to thrive at what you do. He also custom-made your spouse and your kids and suited them to be a really good fit for you and your life. This alone should be enough for us to continually strive to bring honor to his name. But there is so much more. Think about your life specifically. The last 20, 30, 40, 60 years that you've lived. The the ways that God has directly stepped in and either pulled you out of slavery 
or gently moved your focus so that way you could be slowly transformed. Because of his intimate interactions, you are in a far better spot now than you were before. All of these and so many more show us that God is good. That everything from him that we have is good and leads to a good life. It shows us that he is compassionate, full of mercy, and endlessly pouring his goodness on us. And this is the God that we should be representing to the world. The God who really is, not the one who is, whose reputation has been distorted by those who misuse his name. You know, as I begin to wrap this up, let's think through the how. We can and we should do this. You know, bottom line, you should be led by the Spirit. If you want to correctly represent God, then the best and really the only way that you can do this is by the way he leads you to act. What he puts on your mind or on your emotions to say to that person next to you, your friend, the person in the grocery store. Right? If you've been a Christian at all, you understand what I'm talking about. Those slight little inclinations where you feel like you should pull over to help that individual. Right? If you want to best represent God, this is the way to do it. This is how Jesus did it. Check out John 5.19. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now in order to give you us a little framework to think through though, I want to look at the Ten Commandments. You know, earlier I talked about what we should not do. The ways that we should not misrepresent God and his character. But there's another side to that same coin. What, should what we should do to bring honor to his name. You know, as someone's representatives, it's not only what we do not do that shows us who they are. Even more so, it is what we do do. Ha ha, do do. So often, when I read the Ten Commandments... I only focus in on the should nots. Very rarely, if ever, do I think about what the opposite of what the don'ts should be, of what God is asking us to do in this list of instructions. So when it comes to what we are called to do for other people, honor your parents. Think about this, right? If anything pricks something in your mind, write it down and figure out what God's asking you to do. So honor your parents. Show mercy kindness, and forgiveness to others. Remain fully faithful to your spouse. Be content with what you have. Be honest in everything. And we will look at these in the weeks to come. But these are the ways that you can be a proper representative of the, of the one that has done so much for you. Now, in concern to the instructions that he gave us on how to approach God, we are called to make the God of the Bible, our creator, our priority. To openly honor and glorify his name in the midst of others. That's what we were saying in that last song. Just shout it from the mountaintops. We're also called to intentionally set apart, set apart time on a regular basis to rest in what he has done for us. Now, the reason that these are listed first is because they are the most important. It is only when God is at the forefront of your mind that you will be able to love others well. Now, if we're honest, these are easy to dismiss, right? Easy to assume that we do them. Yep, God's my priority. Yep, I set apart time for him. Yep, I proclaim his name. But one can tell their priorities, what their priorities actually are, 
by looking at how they spend their time and their money. So here's a question. Maybe a bit convicting, but it's important. When people look at how you spend your time and money and how you treat others, do they know that you believe in the God of the Bible? By looking at how you live, do others know that you are a Christian? And we need to start living like what we believe is true is actually true. And we don't do this out of guilt or shame, but out of gratitude to our Creator and Savior. We do it out of compassion for those who are around us. And God has set us free and placed us in the here and now for specific reasons. By openly honoring his name, his light can break into every form of darkness. I want to leave you with a verse. Matthew 5, thank you. This is Jesus. You are the light of the world. He's talking to his disciples. A city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jack, keep that up for them while the musicians come up.